I'm Gregory Berg. This week, the studios of WGTD are closed because of the holidays. So we are dipping into the archives for some of our favorite morning show interviews from earlier in 2021. Here's one of those favorite interviews, and I hope you enjoy it. And we welcome you to the Friday morning show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. I'm really pleased to be able to uh, connect for the next few minutes with Tim Halbach, who is the Warning Coordinator, uh, Coordination Meteorologist at the National Weather Service uh, at their office in Milwaukee. And uh, when it comes to severe weather, Tim Halbach is the expert uh, to which all of us can turn uh, to learn about the nature of of storms, what creates them, and, uh, and also what we can do to keep ourselves safe. And what we're going to do as much as anything today is uh, try to get kind of a peek behind the scenes at the National Weather Service and find out a little bit about what goes on there when severe weather descends on the state of Wisconsin, as it did uh, within the last couple of weeks, even in the midst of what has been this protracted drought. uh, There are these moments when severe weather does pop up, and there was kind of a dramatic night when a a line of very, very strong storms uh, mowed through the state uh, with especially uh, heavy uh, damaging winds and, uh, and, and other destructive potential. And so Tim Halbach and his colleagues at the National Weather Service were, were uh, on the job uh, throughout the night, I'm sure, uh, just trying to chart these storms and, and help all of us understand uh, where they were and what we needed to do to keep ourselves safe. And so uh, it seemed like a good time to connect with Tim Haubach and find out more about the work that he and his colleagues do. Tim Haubach, we welcome you to the morning show. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm looking forward to talking all things weather and, uh, you know, any kind of insights into some of the stuff that uh, we go through on a, on a day-to-day basis when we have an event like that. Right. <laughs> Let me just ask, I, I want to be sure I ask this before I forget, uh, as I already touched on, and I, we don't need to tell anybody in Wisconsin that we're in the middle of a of a big drought, a serious drought, mm-hmm. as is of course much of of North America. Actually, uh, mm-hmm. in a in a summer like this, is life easier for you and your colleagues at the National Weather Service? Um, well, so we are actually part of the Wisconsin State Drought Task Force as well. So even though we might be, you know, looking at, you know, we've had periods where there's been less rain, maybe that's less, you know, forecast activity or severe weather activity, there's still a lot of things that we get involved with. So the the drought aspect is one of those things that we're briefing the state people um, that are, you know, involved with this, like the DNR. Um, and anybody that can kind of help out if we, when we are in a situation like this. So there are things like that. Um, we also do a lot of support for any events that are happening in, in the state that need, uh, you know, somebody to keep an eye on the weather for them. So Country Thunder down in that part of the state right. is, uh, is a group that, I, I think they need to change the name of their thing because <laughs> <laughs> it seems like every year we get something that that comes through and and uh, you know makes a little <laughs> brings a little wind with it, a lot of thunder. So we um, 
We work with uh, the public safety people at those events to give them briefings on when we think storms are going to come in, uh, even if they're not severe, as we know that, you know, a, a girl got struck by lightning there a few years ago. Um, so trying to trying to keep people as safe as possible to kind of let them know that even when there's, you know, maybe not severe events, we're pretty active with letting people know that, uh, you know, this weather might be coming in. Um, along with just being able to tell them, hey, today's today's a day where you're not going to have to worry about weather. It's going to be a, you know, just fine day. So here, the, it seems like we're always busy, even on the on the days where it could be kind of a kind of considered a quiet type day. Um, there's still plenty going on. I read someplace that your interest in meteorology, your fascination with weather and particularly severe weather, uh, stems from something that you experienced as a child when I think you were uh, all too close, too close to comfort, uh, to a tornado. Can you tell us that story? If yeah, I... so I, yeah, I, I was always interested in weather. Uh, my, my dad, he worked, I, so I grew up in Fond du Lac and um final like wisconsin and my dad was involved with uh, a farm service that uh delivered farm seed and uh, fertilizer things like that to farmers kind of ranging from the ripon fond du lac to calumet county areas and um we're always kind of watching the weather you know when the storm you know (laughs) the stuff i tell people now you know go to the basement see shelter you know, we'd be watching the Weather Channel and, you know, waiting for storms to come in. We'd be watching them as, uh, you know, the storms would come in. So that that always kind of piqued my, my interest in the weather. I, I wasn't really, you know, into the books and all that stuff, um, you know, early on. But we had uh, the Oakfield tornado that happened back in 1996, and I was in high school at the time. And I, I just remember thinking, like, first off, like, the tornado when it was – kind of further away, I'm like, that doesn't look like a tornado. It just looks like a big cloud that's on the ground. Uh, we're about five miles or so to the the north uh, from where my parents' house was in Fond du Lac. So I basically watched it as it went through its whole life cycle through through Oakfield that day. And, you know, I, I kind of knew something was, you know, off because after that I went over to my my friend's house and they started yelling at me because I was late for playing Euchre with them. I'm like, guys, there was just this, this big uh, tornado that just happened. You're like, so what? You're late for Euchre. <laughs> so um, <laughs> at, at that, at that point I, I kind of knew like, Hey, maybe this is something that, you know, I'm, I'm really interested in. And today I just, I, I pitch myself that I get to do this as a job. Um, you know, it's, it's, it doesn't feel like it a lot of the times. And I, I think that's just, you know, just very lucky that I, I get to do this. Right. Well, and it would have been something for you to be at the National Weather Service uh, for that Oakfield tornado. I, I remember that well, and I remember that it was one of maybe a dozen different tornadoes that popped up in that same cell of activity. So whoever was on the job at the National Weather Service that day had their hands full and then some. Yeah, and that so it's kind of interesting because when – when that tornado happened back in 96, we had just had the, the Doppler radar that's currently at our location in Sullivan uh, 
that had basically been in operation for about a year or so. So it was kind of a new, I don't want to call it a toy, but, you know, a new toy, you know, for us to be able to actually look at storms. And I don't think we all completely knew, you know, how game, how big of a game changer that radar was that we were able to actually get some forewarning to people. You know, at, at the time it was, I think about five to eight minutes before the, you know, from when the warning was issued to, to when uh, it actually went into Oakfield. And at that time, that, that was a pretty big deal because the resolution and everything that we were looking at was greatly improved. And it was kind of the first step that, you know, really changed things for how we're able to, to look at storms and being able to forewarn people that this, this bad weather is coming. Mm. We're speaking today on the morning show with uh, Tim Hobach, who is warning coordination meteorologist for the National Weather Service and their Milwaukee office. Uh, he has been with the National Weather Service since 2005. Uh, he joined the Milwaukee office in 2015. Uh, maybe we could get kind of a big picture uh, view of the National Weather Service. Uh, Give us an, an idea, at least, of, of how the National Weather Service is organized uh, across the country. Just how huge an organization are, are we talking about? And, and how is it, in a sense, sort of put together? How does it function? Yeah, so there, we are part of the federal government under the Department of Commerce and NOAA. So there's the main part of the National Weather Service are the local field offices. So... There's about 120 of these field offices that um, back in the back in the 90s there was something that was called modernization and it's when all the radars were deployed and they kind of it was kind of a became a political battle a little bit for what office would cover what areas of the United States but every county in the United States has an office that's assigned to it so. Um, that's the main component of it. So here in Wisconsin, our office covers the the area from Wisconsin Dells over to Sheboygan, down to the Illinois border. Um, so Kenosha, running west over to uh, Lafayette County, and then there's there's other offices that just take different chunks of real estate. So I, I actually used to work at the Chicago office. So we would forecast for Lake uh, County. Uh, you know, going across northern Illinois there. And our role and our jobs are to uh, forecast and put out warnings for those the people residing in those counties. So it's kind of like our areas that we're responsible for keeping those people safe and uh, letting them know what, what's coming. So each different chunk of the United States has its different weather hazards that it's got to be uh, aware of. You know, here in Wisconsin, obviously, we've got all four seasons, which makes it really interesting. I, I think that this is one of the, the tougher areas to forecast for in the United States. But uh, the Weather Service as a whole, it has some other entities that are part of it. There's some national centers uh, that get a lot of attention. The National Hurricane Center, which provides all the uh, life-saving forecasts for people living along the Gulf Coast. And then um, the Storm Prediction Center is another big group. They're the ones that basically there are severe weather experts 
and they are put in task of uh, putting out forecasts for the whole United States on areas where they think severe weather is going to to occur. And then there's another group called the, the Weather Prediction Center. They do rainfall and snowfall forecasts as well, so kind of a how much rainfall, how much snow we're going to get. And then kind of a the, the last kind of lesser-known part, there's uh, we're called Central Weather Service Units. And there's, I'm not sure how many of these that are kind of spread out across the United States, but it's actually a Weather Service FAA-funded office that in some of the bigger cities, they have these where they provide briefings and updates for aviation purposes. So oh. down in the Chicago area, it's uh, Aurora, that that office actually is co-located with the FAA and they work side by side with all the air traffic routing and planning that occurs in uh, the basically the Chicago airspace. Hmm. So those are kind of spread out across the United States. Um, and it's, it's basically every, our goal is just to keep people safe and uh, try to try to protect people from, or give them a heads up when that, bad weather occurs. Right. I, I I did a little bit of reading up on the National Weather Service, and I was absolutely dumbfounded uh, to read that what is typically thought of as as the, the origins of, of the current uh, National Weather Service uh, began in 1890, and actually all the way back in 1870, there was something called yeah. the Weather Bureau of the United States uh, established. And it's just kind of, I mean, it never would have dawned on me that such a thing would have existed back then, just because when we think of the science of meteorology and what meteorologists do, uh, it, it it involves all kind of technology that could not have been conceived in, in the time of President <laughs> Ulysses S. Grant. I mean, and, and yet, of course, you know, back then there were things that, people were, were anxious to know and, and understand better about the weather, and, and I suppose especially uh, when weather became severe. But it's just kind of interesting to think about how a weather bureau would have functioned uh, 140 years ago. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it, it, even in my short career, of, I've, I've been in for, I think it's 16 years now, I've, I've lost track of time, but um, even in that short amount of time, the improvements with satellite and radar and a lot of the, the forecast models that we're using is, is taking some some giant leaps there but um just thinking back to like you know just radar and satellite on its own and having that you know back back in the day it was mainly just people observing the weather and then they were you know basically sending out whatever their um their observation was and documenting it for temperatures, wind, um, uh, precipitation. And then they would, you know, basically send that to a central location that would plot out a map. And so you could kind of see where the weather patterns were, but you know, it was at, it was kind of in this period where early researchers were trying to figure out, all right, what does this weather pattern mean? And, you know, to try to forecast what was going to happen, you'd basically just be looking at observations, you know, what's currently happening and trying to anticipate which way things were moving and whether or not you'd, you'd get snow from that or not. So 
there's been some huge advances, and we're, we're living in a pretty good era right now. Mm. We're speaking with Tim Halbach, who is with the Milwaukee Office of the National Weather Service. He is the Warning Coordination Meteorologist for uh, that office of the National Weather Service. Uh, Tim Halbach, one thing that I think would be helpful is for us to know what typically is the relationship between the National Weather Service and uh, those entities through which most of us tend to get our most up-to-date weather information. I mean, when we turn on, for instance, Channel 12 or Channel 6 or Channel 58 in Milwaukee, and we see a meteorologist telling us about severe weather coming in, uh, are they getting at least some of their information directly from you, from the National Weather Service, or do they tend to, in a sense, operate on their on their own? So, yeah, we have a, a very close relationship with television meteorologists uh, at the private sector as well. Um, we're not really in a competition with each other or anything like that. Our Our goal here is to, you know, however forecast gets out or that important you know hazardous weather information gets out there um we want it we want it to get out to as many people as possible so we realize that a lot of the people that are on tv they've got a lot bigger reach than the national weather service our our main direct way that we can communicate with people is through social media which is you know good and bad but it's there um but we work really closely with them and we're, so a lot of the, the meteorologists that are in the, the Milwaukee and Madison markets, which are the two main ones that we talk to, um, you know, a lot of them, we went, all, we went to the same colleges together um, and went, got our atmospheric science degrees. You know, some people in the weather service maybe had to go in a little bit longer, but uh, some of my, I went to UW-Milwaukee and uh couple guys I went to the school with there are in the Milwaukee and Green Bay markets now. So we work very closely with them. The Probably the, the closest that we work with them is during severe weather events. We have uh, kind of an internal chat that we can talk to. It's mainly for TV meteorologists, but we also communicate with emergency management directors Anybody that's really, you know, kind of public safety or a partner of the weather service can hop on this chat. And we're essentially doing play-by-play on what we're seeing on the storms and any reports that we're getting. And then they can take that and relay that out while they're, you know, going wall-to-wall during a tornado warning. So that's, you know, we kind of work together to be able to, you know, really – you know, if we have a tornado, like, so say last week, we had the storms that were coming through in the middle of the night, and uh, local TV meteorologists are going live wall-to-wall, and we we saw the tornado debris signature on our radar uh, near Watertown first, and then by Concord. We were basically, as soon as we saw that, we're like, there's a tornado on the ground here. You need to be telling these people by Concord and Watertown that, um you know, there's a legit tornado that's occurring there. So they take that information, they can relay it out. So it's a very quick kind of communication process. But um, in other times of the year, that's part of my job is to, 
kind of take feedback from them. You know, if, did our winter storm warning, did we hit the right counties there? Uh, did our messaging do well or anything that we missed when we were forecasting this? Because um, a lot of them get to, they, they look at a lot of the same information in the forecast models that we're looking at as well. Hmm. So it's, it's a very close uh, relationship that we have with them. When a severe thunderstorm watch or warning or a t- tornado watch or warning is, is issued, is that issued by you, by the National Weather Service? In other words, that's not a judgment call by Mark Baden at Channel 12 or whoever. I mean, th- that, yeah. that official designation comes from you and only from you? That's correct. And the, the, the main reason for that is just the last thing you want during a severe weather event is confusion. If, say, you know, we're, you know, we're, we're, the, we're the one entity that's putting out these watches and warnings, it, it puts, you know, the, everything on us for whether or not those watches and warnings are, are correct. Um, so you can, you can imagine if we're saying one thing and then somebody on TV is saying something else about, uh, you know, putting out a different warning that could add confusion for people. So that's how it's always pretty much been. There's, there's been some other private weather industries that have done their own kind of, their own kind of warnings uh, for different purposes, but um, nothing that is public facing. Right. Yeah. I think that would be a terribly chaotic (laughs) situation if, uh, if, if we were subjected to uh, all these different judgment calls. So, it's good to, good to have that, that, that clarity. We're speaking with Tim yep. Haubach from the Milwaukee Office of the National Weather Service. So we've just talked about this, uh, this, this night not too long ago within the last couple of weeks in which a line of incredibly strong storms uh, just kind of mowed through the state of Wisconsin. And I think they uh, uh, were in Minnesota before that, and I think they made it all the way down into to Illinois. And there was the potential for a whole lot of damage to be done. Uh, and, and some damage was done, of course. Uh, so on a night like that uh, at the office of the National Weather Service, so I, at the risk of asking something really personal, were you there? I mean, were you in that office and were you there all night or otherwise? Who was there? How many people were there all night? And what's going on on a night like that at the National Weather Service? Yeah, so I'll, I'll start with, uh, you know, kind of the, you know, the day leading up to that. We, um, at that level of severe risk, and, and it's, it's one of those levels where you kind of, you're, you're, you don't want to be hesitant to, you know, go all in on something like that. But when you're seeing everything come together, you've got to say, you know, this is going to be a really bad uh, event that we're looking at here if it if it all comes together so we spent most of the day uh, trying to provide briefings we did a, a state webinar and a local webinar um, basically where we're just putting it all out there and our latest thinking on what's going to end up happening with this or what our forecast is for that event our concern was that it was going to happen in the, the evening and overnight hours which typically is when people are sleeping and they might not have their phone by them they might not have their weather radio by them. So our goal during the day was basically to raise as much awareness that these storms are going to come through in the middle of the night. You have to have a way to, to, to get those warnings if you get them. So I personally, I, I worked eight to four. I came home 
got to have dinner with the family and then um, got the call to go back in at nine o'clock. Um, so I, I ended up working until I think it was about three in the morning. Um, typically during a, an event like this, we'll have about six or seven people in the office. We, on a, on a day-to-day basis, we've got three people that work first shift, two people that are, so first shift would be like 8 a.m. to 4 p.m., two people on the evening shift, which is 4 p.m. to midnight, and then two more people that are working the midnight to 8 a.m. So that's normal operations. When we have an event like that, um, we had somebody that was specifically issuing tornado warnings, another person that was specifically focused on severe thunderstorm warnings. Uh, my job is typically the communicator, so I'm the one that uh, talks with the, the media and that chat I was talking about. And then also we have a, a radio that we talk to all the county and uh, city dispatch centers uh, to relay the warnings and try to collect any kind of reports that might be coming in that uh, there was a tornado or tree damage, whatever it might be. Um, so then uh, worked till about three. I, I couldn't get home because one of the tornado paths actually went between the office and my home. So a 15-minute drive took about an hour to get to try to find a road that didn't have trees down. Wow. Um, and then it was back in the office around 7 to try to organize for the, the damage surveys that we had to do the next day, which we are actually still doing today, some kind of cleanup on a few of those. So um, it, it, it's we get a big event like that. It's, it's a lot of work and a lot of different things from – before the storms happen to after the storms happen. Right. As you are there that night tracking these storms, trying to figure out where they're headed, are they getting stronger and so on, is basically all of your information coming from radar or is any of your information coming, in a sense, from the field? Uh, I mean, where, where you are actually finding out in, in that way how much it's raining or how hard the wind is blowing and so on. I mean, does that information come to you almost entirely in a sense, electronically and virtually or, or is any of, or, 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 or or do you have any sort of way to be on the ground during an event like that? So in the middle of the night like that, uh, it's very rare for us to get reports of uh, wind damage unless, uh, you know, maybe like a sheriff's deputy is driving around and comes across tree damage. Um, so we're essentially going straight off of radar, um, which, uh, you know, for better or worse, you know, we, 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 try, we have to issue the warnings. And it's a very kind of it's a, it's a weird feeling to be that person that's sitting on the desk that has to issue those warnings because you have on one side, you want to make sure that everybody is being forewarned of, any potential tornado that's coming in. But on the same side, you know the ramifications of issuing a tornado warning where maybe a tornado doesn't happen, that people are waking up their kids and, you know, maybe hospitals have to move people around. You know that there's a lot of impact that happens from that. And also the fact that if people get a lot of warnings and then nothing ends up happening, that they kind of get complacent and they, they might not be as quick to go to shelter the next time. So it's just, tough balance of not knowing anything that's actually happening, but trusting what you're seeing on radar and also 
doing in a, an analysis of what the environment is telling you. So we're looking at all the airport observations showing us, you know, where the, where the warm front might be, you know, if these storms interact with the warm front, you got to watch out for that. Um, so that was something from the, the other night where uh, we didn't get any of the reports of damage until the sun came up the next morning. I think I, I woke up and I, I turned on the news and I, saw the, the helicopter footage of the, the damage that had occurred. And, uh, you know, it, it kind of lined up with what we were seeing on radar, but we didn't, we didn't get any of those reports outside of when I started driving home <laughs> and uh, saw the trees down and called that back into you, the office to you, let them know. You saw it for yourself, yes. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm curious about when you are looking at the radar, what that – what those radar images actually are. And one of the reasons I, I wanted to ask that is because I think we all saw either during or after the fact that those radar images with this line of storms and, you know, typically it verges from light green all the way to dark red, which is when it's at its worst. And I think a lot of us assume that that means rain. Uh, but a lot of this storm activity did not involve actually all that much rain. It was severity of another type. So, so when we're seeing those bright colors on a radar screen, what actually do those colors represent? So there's actually probably about 10 different, different things that we can look at on radar. Uh, the main one that you see on TV is called reflectivity. That's basically just telling you how much stuff is out there. Our, our radar pulse is going out. It's bouncing off all the raindrops, and it's telling us, in areas where there's more stuff that's coming down. But there's other things like velocity. We can actually see rotation in storms. It's uh, using the Doppler effect where you can actually see where there's storm motions that are moving away from the radar and ones that are coming close. You can, you can see rotations. One of the other things that we saw, which if you maybe were watching along with television the other night, there's a field called correlation coefficient, which essentially it's just telling us how much of the stuff is all the same size and shape in a, a certain area. And there's something that we can actually see where there's a tornado debris signature where um, we can, if we kind of line up this little kind of blue dot that shows up um, along with where the rotation is, we can verify that a tornado has happened. It's just telling us that there's a bunch of debris that are different sizes and shapes flying around um, where that tornado is happening. So mm. those are some of the main fields that, that we use during uh, severe thunderstorm warnings or severe thunderstorm events. Um, it's a lot of information to process in a short amount of time. Some of the things that we look at are more obvious than others. Um, the stuff that came through uh, Jefferson and Waukesha County was a little bit more obvious than what we were seeing out west. So in, in Dane County and kind of over by Portage and Columbia County, we actually didn't issue warnings over there, and they ended up having a few tornadoes because it's a little bit further away from the radar. Yeah, so it meant that we we're scanning at a, at a higher elevation, and it just didn't look as strong as what we saw further east. So it's a, it's a complicated thing for us to be able to just use radar when we're issuing these warnings because sometimes it's more obvious than other situations. Right. I think one of the things that had me genuinely terrified that night was when I read 
someplace. I don't remember if it was from the National Weather Service or not, but uh, people were saying that this had the potential to be what I think is called a derecho, um, which is a, a term I don't think I'd ever heard in my whole life until this kind of a storm tore through the state of Iowa. I think that was last summer. And mm-hmm. and, and it created just an, in, in a, an amazing amount of devastation through the heart of that state. And uh, and I knew people in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, who you know were, were without power for such a long time. It was as though a hurricane had come through, and yet uh-huh. you know the rest of the country just didn't seem to understand uh, the, the 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 kind of terrible damage that had been done by this strange sort of storm with immense straight line winds. And and when I heard that this line t- tearing through Wisconsin might be that same kind of storm, it just it just terrified me to think that we might be seeing the same kind of destruction. Did this recent storm end up reaching that categorization? I don't believe it. It, it ended up getting that. Uh, typically, so the, the retro is uh, kind of an internal weather service term that we just use to document these. It's basically a line of storms that produces wind damage over a very long extent. I think uh, 200 miles is uh, kind of a delineation between whether or not you call one a derecho or not. So I don't know that this one got that. I, I think the expectations for this event were that it would maybe take off a little bit sooner up in the northwestern part of the state so that you'd have wind damage all the way from, you know, say, like Chippewa Falls, all the way through Racine and Kenosha counties or something like that. It didn't really, it didn't take off as fast as what we thought. I don't think the warm front got up fast enough to be able to help really boost it. So it didn't really get going until it was in southern Wisconsin. And then I think it rolled northern Illinois and then northern Indiana. But I don't think it had a continuous path long enough. Uh, mm. But the the damage that we had here was uh, was pretty good we had some 90 mile per hour winds that uh, likely occurred over by Ripon in western Fond du Lac County but um, in terms of just the longevity of it I I don't know that it technically got that uh, long of a pass right I appreciate the fact that you you touched on the complexity of issuing watches and issuing warnings and the fact that you need to be careful about that, that it doesn't make sense to, uh, in a sense, err too si- far on the side of caution because after a while, uh, th- these watches and these warnings start to lose their their impact, their, their effectiveness with the public uh, if, if they're sort of issued at the drop of a hat. I mean, there needs to be actual severe weather of a certain potential where it, 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 it justifies uh, such a thing. So I think that's really tricky. I think another thing that's tricky is when you talk about a county like, for instance, Kenosha County or Racine County, that east to west is really long. I couldn't tell you how many miles long or wide these two counties are, but you could potentially have something going on at the far western edge of Racine County or Kenosha County that has no high likelihood of ever impacting the cities of Kenosha or Racine. Uh, 
But what do you do? Do you split the county in half, or do you just issue a watch or a warning for that entire county? Uh, do those become tricky decisions to make, uh, particularly with certain counties of a certain uh, of a certain size and configuration? So normally, so just to kind of roll through this, the a watch. The severe thunderstorm watch or tornado watch, that's typically issued ahead of time. That would be like two to six hours before the storms happen or are about to occur. Um, so that's kind of your like heads up or like, you know, you know, this, these are the potential is going to be there in the next few hours. So that's all done county level. So uh, we wouldn't split up any counties with that. It would just be all of Racine, Kenosha counties. With the warnings, there's storm-based warnings, and this was a kind of a change from, say, like 10, 15 years ago, where it was county-based warnings. So you could have a storm roll through the west part of Racine, Kenosha, and you'd have to light up the entire county to say, hey, there's this uh, tornado that's going to go through part of the county, um, and it, it's it's not going to go anywhere close to Racine or Kenosha, but uh, you know, the sirens go off and they, they get all the warning and alerts and all that. That's still kind of the case with uh, some of the technology that we've got. Um, but right now what we do is storm-based warning. So you'll see these, we call them polygons. They're just uh, the shape of, uh, like, it looks like a rectangle or a box where we're highlighting the area where we think the, the worst part of the severe weather is going to be. So, uh, as an example, from the other night, we issued a tornado warning for western Fond du Lac County. The rotation from that storm wasn't going to go anywhere near the eastern part of the county, so the people on that side of the county didn't have to be as concerned about it. Uh, but this is where it gets a little tricky because you have to kind of know your location and whether or not you're in that that path for where the the worst part of the storm is is going there. So you could potentially see warnings that just go for the western or sometimes it might just be the eastern part of Racine and Kenosha counties um, but that's where it, it might take a little bit of extra work on the, the viewers end to be able to kind of see am I in this warning or am I not in this warning. Right and and just to be clear I, I, I'm pretty sure that once upon a time a tornado warning was issued when someone had seen a tornado, I mean, when there was a funnel cloud. And it seems like the threshold which triggers a, a tornado warning is is not exactly that anymore. Am I right about that? Yeah. I, I, you know, back in, the, back in the day before radar, we would rely upon spotter reports or just public reports into 911 to be able to, to get a sense of if there's, you know, something bad within a storm. Um, we get a lot of funnel cloud reports on clouds that aren't necessarily funnel clouds. There's sometimes where we have these kind of ominous looking low hanging clouds called scud that um, uh, one of the former, uh, my, the guy previously in my position, Rusty Capella, he started this group called the scary looking cloud club. <laughs> and uh, it was basically devoted to this, where there'd be all these scary-looking clouds, but they weren't funnel clouds. They weren't rotating or anything like that. And a lot of times, people in the public in particular would call them into 911 to say, 
hey, I'm seeing this funnel cloud here when in reality it was just kind of a, a low-hanging, dark-looking cloud. Um, and it, I, I've been tricked myself on some of those, but we rely a lot more on radar now in order to be able to – our goal is to get that warning out before the tornado's on the ground. So the only way to do that is to be able to be watching radar, knowing the environment, and trying to be able to, at the first or second signs of rotation, issue a, a tornado warning to let people know that that potential tornado is, is coming. Once we start, once we, you know, say it's daylight, we actually have people that can look at the tornado, our spotters that uh, can report to us. We'll take that information and put it into the warning and say, hey, spotters have actually seen a tornado on the storm. You need to take shelter now. So, that's kind of the process, particularly with tornado warnings, in, in order to try to get any sort of lead time for people to get to their shelter. Mm. We're speaking with Tim Hobach from the Milwaukee office of the National Weather Service. Uh, when I called the National Weather Service hoping to uh, pursue the possibility of interviewing you, uh, whoever I spoke with, who was very, very kind and helpful, uh, mentioned that that it would probably be you who would do the interview, but that you were out in the field that day, uh, either the day after or a couple days after this severe line of storms that we've just been talking about. Uh, describe what you do when you and your colleagues are out doing that, that sort of field work uh, in the aftermath of something which has occurred. And is it as simple as just driving down a bunch of roads and looking for trees that are down or is there a sci something a little more in a sense scientific and methodical about that kind of work so typically what we'll do is um, as the storms wind down we'll go back through the radar data and try to plot out where we think there might have been tornadoes and then once we start getting any sort of damage reports um, especially if they're structural damage reports we'll typically get that information pretty quick because people will call 911 or they'll uh, call the police and then the police can will relay that to us um, or we'll have people just directly let us know. So we kind of do this kind of this initial data gathering of, all right, what areas are going to be the, the worst hit here that we need to go to? So another group of people that we're very, very close with are emergency management directors. So each county has a director that is part of, you know, just helping to also give forewarning, you know, from the information that we're giving out. Uh, but then they also help out in disasters, and they try to they help to get resources to their county to help them recover from the disaster that's just happened. So we'll, they're one of the first people that we talk to, and um, we'll say, hey, what are you hearing in your county? Are there any spots we should go to? And typically they'll have some addresses that we can start at. So with uh, some of the tornadoes we saw the other day, we basically um, grab up all our tools. So uh, our survey pack, we've got an iPad, which will have software on it that we can use to take pictures, and it'll geolocate where the, the damage is, where we took the picture from. And it's got the, the EF kit. So we, we, we have the scale, the EF scale for tornadoes that we can look at a house or a tree or whatever it might be, uh, you know, whatever has been damaged, 
And based on the amount of damage that's occurred at that location, we can assign it a, a wind speed or potential wind speed or uh, EF level. So we had some houses that uh, had their roof peeled back. And for that, you know, specifically in uh, the program, it'll give you a rating. It'll give you a general rating of, you know, between certain wind ranges. And you kind of have to look at the quality of the, the, the construction of the building and the situation of it. And you can kind of adjust the wind speeds based on what you're looking at. So we saw like one farm or one, one kind of outhouse where, not an outhouse, but like a house building um, that it, it basically was just sitting on top of a concrete slab. So when the wind hit it, it just lifted it up and, and dropped it. Um, we saw another one that was bolted down, but the wood was all rotted out. So when the wind blew on it, it kind of it was made it a little bit easier for it to, um, to kind of push it around. So we kind of become investigators and try to figure out, try to recreate what ended up happening with the tornado and what caused the damage. Sometimes a little bit, it's a little bit more uh, straightforward for whether or not it's a tornado or for it's straight line winds. This was a pretty, these cases can be a little bit tricky too because we have tornadoes and wind kind of mixed together. And a lot of times what you'll see is you'll have your tornado pass and some winds that are just about as strong or more widespread happening to the, the west or south of where the tornado path is. So we'll, we'll, we'll see where the tornado path is and then you'll get these reports of there's trees down everywhere just to the south and west of that tornado. Um, and you got to look at it all and you got to just try to piece together what happened. So with these tornadoes and most of the other ones, we'll just start at wherever the, the worst damage is and we'll work our way to the, the, the start point of where we think the damage is and then back through the end point. And along the way, we're, we're talking to people, asking them questions, you know, did you get the warnings? If there was a warning that was issued. Um, you know, anybody get injured or just kind of let them tell the, the story of what they went through that when that storm came through. Um, we also get a bunch of drone footage, too, uh, from either TV stations or the, the county emergency management directors as well. Um, so that helps us to piece together whether or not the tornado was on the ground continuously or if it maybe had other damage that we couldn't get back into because we're kind of limited to whatever the road network is otherwise. Right. And uh, so after that, then we just come back and we, we try to create the path and uh, document the, the tornadoes so that in the future we know that, hey, this event, we had 12 tornadoes that occurred with it. Wow. A last question. I think there is a general sense in much of the public, uh, even among those who maybe are, are skeptical of, of climate change, but certainly for those that uh, believe that there is climate change and fearful of its consequences. But I think a, a lot of people have a sense that our weather seems to be a little less predictable than it once was, and that when we have storms that we often have storms that just seem like they are much more severe than was the case maybe 30 or 40 years ago. Um, 
Is that your sense? I mean, I know your your memory as someone with the National Weather Service doesn't go back that far, but is that kind of a general a, a general perception from many in in your field, or do we have to be careful about making assumptions and pronouncements uh, of that nature? Um, I I guess I I say the opposite of that. I think the forecast, you know, as, as much as people like to, you know, let us know that it must be nice for us to get paid and be wrong half the time. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, the, the forecasts have gotten better. We're, we're seeing a lot more detail with, uh, you know, how things might unfold. Um, and the, the, the modelers are continuing to improve that. We're always, you know, looking at radar and all the different things that are available to us so that we can issue the best warning. Um, and we're, we're continually improving on that as well. Every season is a little bit different. Um, I think that there's probably a lot of people that have a lot more information at their hands than what they maybe did years ago. So maybe that is kind of playing into it with, uh, you know, in climate change in particular, the, you know, if we're continuing to, to warm our temperatures, one of the things here is just that maybe we have a longer, more extended, severe weather season, uh, a little bit more of a it should increase our chances for having the environment and the, the conditions available to produce severe weather. Um, but I, I think where we've seen that probably more recently is with uh, lake ice. Uh, during the winter time, that that's been a little bit more affected by just how long we have ice on our our lakes down here, and uh, you know, based on the warmer winters that that we're having now. So, um, but in terms of severe weather, I I think that you know the predictability of just the the patterns overall and um, what we're looking at in real time should continuously get better, and at least us in here and you know the weather service. Whenever we have an event like this, we're doing a thorough review of, all right, here's, here's the things that we could have maybe done better, some of the different things that we could have picked up on that would have made this event go better. Or we would have been able to get more forewarning out so that the next time that we see that, we're going to improve upon the services that we had done the last time. So um, we've got a very dedicated group of people here that they – they have families here in southern Wisconsin, and they know that they're responsible for trying to keep people safe. So it's the, I know the people that were working from the other night are still kind of, you know, banging their head over what they could have done differently in some areas to try to get that word out. Um, but I know that that will make them better forecasters for the future. Hmm. Good to hear. And uh, I, for one, deeply appreciate the great work that you do. And every time I read a weather forecast here at the radio station i and my colleagues are always careful to say uh the forecast for southeastern wisconsin and northeastern illinois from the national weather service we do not take for granted for one moment the great work that you do tim Hawbach uh is warning coordination meteorologist for the national weather services office in milwaukee tim Hawbach, thank you so much for making time for this conversation and best wishes to you no problem thank you very much